Hello, everyone. Welcome to Podbytes. I'm Valentina Kaladina, and I'm here with my co-host, Ariel Nissenblatt. Hi, Ariel. Hey, thank you for having me. Very excited to be here, and we've got a great show today. We are live on CastBox every Wednesday, or almost every Wednesday, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Last week, we both we spoke with Giancarlo Bizarro, Sales Director at Endeavor Audio. Today's Wednesday, and it's now 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Podbytes is a live interactive show where we talk about the podcast industry. This is episode number 18. This is Livecast, so feel free to participate in the conversation. For questions and comments, you can call in and even text. It would be really great to hear from you throughout the program. In Podbytes, we invite investors, podcasters, and other key opinion leaders to share their insights into the podcast industry. The show is recorded live and uploaded as a podcast episode afterwards. You can engage with other listeners and guests by dialing in or writing comments in real time. You can also send virtual gifts to the host to support the show. You can find previous episodes of the show in Replace. Just go to CastBox and search for Podbytes. On our previous episode, we interviewed Giancarlo Bizarro, sales director at Endeavor Audio based in Los Angeles. Giancarlo had a lot to share about the podcast advertising industry, including some really helpful tips on finding advertisers and making your podcast profitable. Make sure to check it out. It's live in the CastBox feed now. In a few minutes, we will talk to John Asante, managing producer at Neon Home Media, a relatively new podcast production house based in Los Angeles. But before we start, let's chat a bit about what's going on in podcast news this week. First piece of news from Podmove Daily, which is the new podcast movement newsletter. According to NPR News Chief Nancy Barnes, the network will prioritize audio first moving forward. During a session at the Public Radio Program Directors Association Conference on Wednesday, Barnes pointed to a commercial radio as a primary competition. She said, we will need to be thinking five years ahead in owning the audio space because a lot of organizations have seen that there is big growing audience there. Another piece of news, it's from Pod News. Crime junkie accused of plagiarism was sent a lawyer cease and desist letter at the end of last week by the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. The letter claims unauthorized use and broadcast of a podcast series from the newspaper produced by Kathy Fry. Meanwhile, Tanner Campbell says in a blog post that crime junkie were just ignorant and this was inevitable. And last, a podcast recommendation. We're big fans of Meditative Story. It's the first of its kind podcast listening experience that combines the emotional pull of immersive storytelling with the immediate science-backed benefits of mindfulness practice. Meditative Story is a Wait What original series created by the team who built and led TED's media organization in close partnership with Ariana Huffington's Thrive Global. The series is made possible with generous support from Salesforce. All right. So next, we're going to jump into the interview. And today we are joined by John Asante. John Asante is a curious producer devoted to crafting stories that bring light to underserved communities. Currently, he's the managing producer at Neon Home Media, a podcast production company based in downtown L.A. Before that, John developed, produced, and launched several podcasts as a senior producer at Stitcher, including Dear Franklin Jones, Sold in America, and Just Between Us. His work has also been heard on WNYC, The Takeaway, and There Goes the Neighborhood. NPR's Talk of the Nation, Ask Me Another, Morning Edition, and Tell Me More. In his spare time, John hosts Play It Back, 
an independent podcast where creatives tell stories about the songs that have changed your life. Forever he loves his hometown of Atlanta, yet he loves exploring Los Angeles. Hi, John. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me, y'all. Great. Before we talk about your more recent projects, I would like to talk about the beginning of your career. One of your first jobs was with NPR, where you started as an intern and then stayed almost for five years. Uh, at first, when you just started, do you remember your feelings? Was it a dream job? Yeah, it was partly a dream job, but also a nightmare, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was very, very nervous and intimidated by all the other producers, young producers, older producers that I was working with. Mm -hmm. I didn't grow up with NPR at home. I grew up listening to the news and watching the news on radio and TV and all that. But NPR just was something I kind of fell into in college through college radio. Um, so I came with less of a background about all these different broadcasters. So I was learning things really on the fly with only a couple of years of knowledge. Um, but I learned a ton. And I think the, the most important thing I learned was just to, to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Would you say it's a gigantic content creation factory in terms of it works with the rules of huge corporation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing that's interesting about NPR is that it is technically a nonprofit, but um, in some ways it is really run like a, like a huge content house because they have so many different shows so many producers working on several different shows. You have like, maybe daily shows like Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Um, by the time I left, there were, there were more podcasts coming out that were coming out you know, uh, a couple times a week, week. And then you also have your weekly shows like your TED Radio Hour and Ask Me Another, which I worked on. Um, but, like it's, but also because it's around the clock and you have um, you know, reporters making pieces all the time and um, sh like literally you can turn on NPR at any point and you can hear a show, whether it's, um, you know, It's live, it's pre-taped, it's, um, <laughs> it's a rerun, you're going to hear something going on. It's, it's incredible how much content I'm makes. Okay, uh, going okay. on, uh, you left the company to work for a car-sharing business that is called Car2Go. Was this job change because of the hectic nature of job at NPR? Uh, it was a, it was less about it being hectic, and honestly, I was looking for kind of a career change at the time. I think I wasn't necessarily, I'll be honest, I wasn't necessarily happy with like my career progression there. I had worked on Ask Me, at that point, I'd worked on Ask Me Another for a couple of years, and I felt like um, the opportunities to move up and around and to take on more responsibilities were kind of limited. And this is before NPR really took on more podcasts. Like Technically, I was working on a show that was both Uh, produces a radio show and a podcast, but it wasn't nearly as big um, as it was uh, as it is today. And so a little bit of it was pressure, you know, of the hectic nature of working on the, sh on the shows. But honestly, I think I wanted to kind of explore a different career path altogether. I thought about going to business school for some time and mm -hmm. I thought for marketing, yeah, to get my MBA. And I thought working for, weirdly enough, working for a car sharing company doing marketing would be an interesting way to do it. Um, I had some connections to friends and was able to get a job and I thought I'd just do radio on the side and I'd kept following radio and podcasting all and then all of a sudden podcasting kind of blew up <laughs> so I felt a little bit of an itch to come back eventually. Yeah exactly I'm thinking of uh, the you know career progression in media as of the pyramid if you compare this to what exists in the corporate world and the pyramid in uh, content creation and in media companies in particular in uh, in uh, 
publishing houses and uh, media outlets, the the lower part of the pyramid is really gigantic. It's like, yeah, so it's uh, you, you're, you have to stay at this lower part of the pyramid uh, for so long to move up, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, I understand yeah. all these challenges. Uh, but after uh, you spent a couple of years with this marketing job, uh, after this BDM marketing job, you uh, came back to the content creation again, right? What, yeah. Why was it? Yeah. Uh, first off, I really missed being around other storytellers and and actually being in, in radio. Like, I really missed it. Um, I, I had grown a bit tired of kind of the daily grind of working on a new show or I guess what my particular role was, but like I'd still been listening to NPR constantly and 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 more podcasts. And I thought, well, if podcasts are getting bigger, and I had friends who were at WNYC at the time saying, you know, there are more jobs coming up in the podcasting world, then I thought, well, maybe this is the way I pivot. And I had done a few projects on my own, just experimenting with different types of podcasts and working with other friends. And I realized, oh, okay, well, there are people actually getting full-time jobs in this. And so maybe this is my way back in. Maybe this is a way to, that's not the, the be-all, end-all that I had seen before, that it was just public radio. Honestly, I, I was a little bit jealous of some friends who were starting to make moves, whether they're at WNYC or, or Slate or even like with Gimlet coming up and all that. Um, so I kind of wanted, I wanted back in. Was it easy to join WNYC? Uh, I wouldn't say it was easy. It was, because it is definitely the, one of like the more prominent um, public radio Exactly. Um, m- member stations. So it was really competitive. Honestly, it was, it, yeah, it wasn't easy. I, I'm thinking uh, of, you know, was- if you want to join the uh, prominent media outlet, you have to, uh, sometimes you have to go uh, probably a couple of levels uh, below than you're supposed to be. So uh, you have to compromise on this. Did you have to compromise? Uh, no, I, I, I didn't have to really compromise on the level. I was pretty fortunate. I went from... I guess my last job at NPR was an associate producer and I came in as a, well, I guess I came in as like an assistant producer. So I left NPR as assistant producer, came in as like an associate producer, producer level. So it was kind of the next step up, but I didn't start off as a full-time employee. Actually, I ended up getting a couple weeks of temp work working on There Goes the Neighborhood. Two mm-hmm. weeks turned into six weeks, six weeks turned into a couple months. And then I fortunately, I, I had the foresight to apply for another job, a couple other jobs while I was there and just network around through my friends who were there. So I did get end up getting a job as a an associate producer on The Takeaway, but it was a little bit of a backtrack because I wasn't trying to get back into news, like a daily news mm-hmm. talk show. That wasn't really my my goal. I honestly wanted to get them on more of a, a storytelling type of show. Like I'd been really listening to a lot of uh, Snap Judgment and, and Death, Sex, and Money. And so I thought that would be kind of more my route. But I figured, okay, well, this is a, I've already kind of gotten in. Let me use the takeaway as sort of a launching pad to network with other people and, and maybe produce some interesting things that I'd never done before. Okay, so let's talk a bit about There Goes the Neighborhood. If I remember correctly, you was an associate producer and an interviewee at the same time. Is it correct? Yeah, I was interviewed a little bit Um for smaller parts of the series, we ended up doing sort of a video compilation yeah. um, as uh-huh. like a, uh, as a promo. But yeah, I was mainly behind the scenes um, as a producer, um, producer and project manager. It was the first time I was kind of challenged or kind of challenged, but also brought on, t- took on the responsibility of making sure that every, every team was communicating with the producers or communicating with the editors and the, 
and the reporters and the people who are in marketing and PR and social media to make sure that we got this podcast out. And it was, it, it was something as now looking back as straightforward as creating a, like a launch checklist, a production calendar of, okay, what are, what are the certain mm-hmm. goals we need to meet? How do we make sure we're on track to actually produce the show, um, you know, in a timely manner? Um, mm-hmm. But it was some, it's something that wasn't there. And I, so I kept asking people, like, well, how are we all communicating if we are all just sending emails back and forth? And so it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's not a glamorous job, but it's something that I, uh, project management is something I took on in addition to editing audio and writing scripts that I, I realized ended up being really advantageous. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the story itself. Uh, when mm-hmm. I was listening to your promo video and to what you were saying there, I I had a feeling that you were emotionally involved to a very high degree into this show. Uh, how was it to work on a show uh, and to talk about the topic and to edit the content uh, on the topic that you're feeling, um, you know, you, you can relate to. How was yeah, it? Yeah, it was, it was, um, it was, it was tricky. It was really fascinating because it was really one of the first times I'd been speaking one specific project that I was almost actively involved in and also actively against. <laughs> um, so you I mean guess against context, the context. Can you elaborate oh. a little bit? Probably not all of the listeners understand. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, so I should say I was I wasn't actively against the project. The project was great. Like so, there goes the neighborhood for context was a documentary podcast that I produced for WMIC that um, basically documented the the state of gentrification in Brooklyn and talked about how gentrification came to be in terms of pushing mainly uh, people of color and poorer people out of neighborhoods. Um, to create more space for wealthier, more typically more white, uh, typically white people to live in these neighborhoods. And this is happening not just in Brooklyn, but in many cities across the U.S., especially here in L.A. And we were documenting it from the sides of the people who are being affected, who are getting pushed out, the people who are making these deals happen, like the contractors and the real estate agents, what the government was doing. Um, and so we were talking about people on all different sides of it. And so what I mean by the fact that I was actively against it, I was, I was actively against the, the state of gentrification and it, and it being a thing where as a citizen, as a person. As, yeah. I will say like, I will love to clarify. I will say I would, I wasn't going to like, um, I wasn't going to um, like town hall meetings <laughs> about it. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of wish I did. And I was on, I wasn't a hundred percent sure if I should for the series, but I, but I really was active in talking out about it with my friends and saying, and having these real conversations about, Hey, we live in these neighborhoods where there are these fancy coffee shops and restaurants and bars. And you know, these neighborhoods are looking a lot, a lot more homogenous. Like even in my building, I remember seeing like, I was, I, I was one of three black people in this building of eight, eight apartments and, Everybody else but me and these two other septuagenarians uh, were, were black, the people of color. Mm-hmm. And I remember the, the day they moved out, um, like one day they were there, and the next day their sons, one of their sons came to like get all their stuff. And I asked the guy, I'm like, oh, what's going on? He's like, yeah, my mom and my aunt are moving out. And I go, oh my gosh, what happened? He's, he's like, well, you know, they're older. We're, you know, I think they're going to be in a home. Like we can't afford to keep them here. Blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And then literally the next week, the place was gut renovated and turned into an apartment for three women. And the women who moved in were these three white, younger white women. And I it just, I literally saw gentrification before my eyes. Yeah. And also what that series taught me was that gentrification isn't 
just beholden to race. It's also a class thing. So for me as a black man, like I didn't grow up in New York or New York City. So I mean, me coming in and being able to afford to live in this building for far more than it was worth five, 10 years before that, technically makes me a gentrifier. So what I did was try to be mindful of the situation and try to be as active, or at least mindful of my community of what was going on, like supporting local businesses that have been there a long time, looking out for my neighbors, right. actually talking to my neighbors too, mm-hmm. being aware of what my, my footprint was in the, in the neighborhood. And for context, I lived in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, which is in, in central Brooklyn. Did you have this feeling from time to time? Did you have to tell to yourself sometimes, okay, I'm biased, John, <laughs> hold on, keep calm, and you have to be objective? Because obviously you have yeah, your own opinion. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I did. I I kind of had to hold back a little bit. Um, I I feel like I didn't have to do that as much because our reporting. I felt like the reporting that we did was very fair. Um, if it there, and we really were trying to get both sides of it. Really, from these real estate agents who were like saying, "Oh, we're bringing in these great resources and these really nice buildings and all that," but also questioning them on, "Okay, well, do you know? Do you realize who you're pushing out or who it's affecting?" And then talking to the people who were like the people who'd been in these neighborhoods for decades who were struggling to, to keep, you know, living in these neighborhoods as the, as the prices went up and ask and asking them like, you know, what are the good and bad parts about gentrification and just being upfront and honest with them. And, you know, they said like, cool, we, you know, we get more resources, we get better grocery stores, right. but at, at what cost seeing our, our neighbors go, there should be a balance. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. I felt, I, I definitely felt conflicted at times. Yeah. Have you listened to the season two? Yes. Yeah. I listened to it right as I moved to Los Angeles. Yeah. All right. This is funny. I find, I find it's a very, you know, it's a funny coincidence uh, that season two is about Los Angeles and you again can share your own opinion on what's going on because you can see it with your own eyes. Uh, how does this different from what was in Brooklyn? Oh, wow. Um, who trying to think of where to I think, There was a lot about LA that I didn't really know in terms of gentrification before I moved here. And honestly, LA was just such a foreign place to me that I couldn't figure it out from my left and my right because it was such a big city and a lot of you had to drive. But I, what I did realize is that the homelessness problem, which was definitely something that was talked about in the series, it seemed to be kind of pervasive in a different way. Um, whereas in New York, The homeless population is, I mean, it's still a problem. And the, the, like, unfortunately, they are kind of in almost every part of the city. It seemed as if in L.A., people were now saying, oh, wow, now there are homeless people in Venice. And now there's homeless people in more of them in Hollywood and like more of them downtown. And, I, and to me, that felt kind of weird to see to see that or to, for people to say that because I go, well, aren't they kind of everywhere? But I, re- I learned more about how certain neighborhoods were pushing against that. And, and to me, prices in L.A., honestly, sadly, didn't seem as bad as New York because I was getting a little bit more space for my money. Um, but I realized it was a problem. I just didn't fully get it until I, it took me listening to the series and also talking to friends about how, how places have changed and also realizing that I did move into a, what was already a fully gentrified neighborhood and then talking to other people about what was those feels like 10, 15 years ago. And they said, it's changed greatly. Mm-hmm. Um, So it's been, it's been a really, it was a really interesting experience to listen to the podcast. It actually helped me figure out what Los Angeles was kind of like yeah. in a truer sense. Mm-hmm. Mm, okay. Let's talk about another show. Uh, the Takeaway is the second show that you worked for. And that one, uh, that one is different. It's a more mm-hmm. hectic, uh, it's a different production schedule. What is the most valuable that you got from that experience? Oh man, working working on the fly, um, making quick decisions. 
um, and, and teamwork, really, relying on your coworkers. So there's a, there's a lot of things I learned. So it wasn't the first, the takeaway wasn't the first daily national news talk show that I'd worked on. I'd worked on uh, Talk of the Nation right yeah. out of college, um, right after my internship, like I, at NPR, like I mentioned. Um, this one was different because not everything we did was live. Like some things we we ta- we recorded, we taped, and then we'd get to edit the you know audio later. And so, for me, that really built up my my audio editing skills, my tape cutting skills, because it wasn't as if I could sit with this 10, 15 minute interview and have a few hours or a day to edit it down to I don't know five to eight minutes, whatever I needed to edit it down to. Um, mm-hmm. I had to get it done within sometimes two hours max, sometimes an hour and a half, sometimes half an hour. Um, so it really helped me make quick decisions without laboring over them um, for so long. And it was, a, I think it really helped me in terms of also connecting with other people at WNYC and um, seeing what their jobs are like. And because we had to you know, collaborate with different reporters and sometimes different shows, um, it also allowed me to work on some really cool um, long-term projects. So, so it, was, it gave me a sense of, being able to work on short-term and long-term things. Like I'd have, you know, I have to write a script for an interview going out tomorrow and then edit audio for an interview going out today. And- uh, I'm curious about one thing. Uh, the we, As you mentioned, you worked on The Daily Show earlier in your career. Uh, I was curious, again, what was the difference? Because obviously when you worked, uh, when you worked at The Takeaway, it was, uh, again, a different, you know, you had more experience at that time. So, and, and still it was a daily show. It was hectic. And, uh, I know how people are dying on the daily shows. Was it like, did you look at this, uh, at the process, uh, with the different mindset? Yeah, I, I, yes, I think, um, yeah, the difference between, oh, producing, yeah. Producing talk of the nation at 22 and then producing, uh, the, the takeaway at, gosh, I think it was like 28 at that mm-hmm. point. Um, was so different because I was able to kind of be a little bit of a leader for, for interns who came in. I was less nervous about making those calls to making those cold calls to studios or at least to, to people I had to pre-interview. Um, I, I got to learn how to line produce in the, in the studio, like actually be directing, you know, basically calling the shots between the engineer and another producer and uh, the sound designer and also the, the host on air. And so that was a really good sense of confidence that I got to build. Um, So yeah, I mean, even though they were both hectic, they were hectic in different ways. Um, it was oh, also the big. Uh, I think it would say the most, the biggest difference that I didn't mention is that Talk of the Nation came on at, uh, gosh, I think it was 2 p.m. Eastern every every day, Monday through Friday. Whereas uh-huh. the takeaway, so we had to build up to that. Like we were producing in the morning to build up to that. So we were coming in really early. Whereas the takeaway, actually, we even came in earlier sometimes for that. The takeaway would run. Um, I guess that was an hour long show that went from nine to ten a.m. Um, so when did you have to finish your editing? Oh gosh, it depended. So typically for most, if I, if I was producing something that was going to air the next day and we'd already recorded it, like sometimes we were basically what we do is like, we'd have like an earlier shift and a later shift. And so if I was in the later shift, I would make sure to book that interview to be, uh, recorded sometime after 10 PM after the show ends. So it could be somewhere between 10 PM and 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. And then I'd have until the end of the day. So I'd have a little bit more time. I'd have until like maybe five or six to write the script, edit the audio, make sure it's good. But if I was on the early shift, I'd be coming in at 7 a.m. And we would be recording those those interviews anytime between 7 and 8.30 a.m. And so then I'd have somewhere between 
30 to 45 minutes, sometimes maybe an hour to cut down uh, a 10 minute interview to six minutes or an eight minute interview to four minutes. So it's a matter of sometimes figuring out what question goes and the errs and ums are you cutting and how are you clip of taper are you adding in there like whether it's archival or something from the news is it's, it's a lot of working on the fly mm-hmm. so it's a different kind of a hectic environment because we're restricted uh with the time of the show and we still want to touch uh, upon your uh, main uh, you know main career steps uh, i would like to switch now a little bit switch gears a little bit and talk uh, about your work at stitcher uh you worked at stitcher and you was responsible for producing the original content and uh, you stayed there almost for two years so this is a tricky question you know always when a platform uh, starting to create their own shows um, you know, you, it's always a tricky question. Is it the right way to produce original content or you just leave this to production companies with the content creation DNA? And I'm not going to ask you about that, but because this is a question to the company's strategy, uh, I'm more interested uh, in the question of, uh, because you were involved in a few shows there and I'm more interested uh, which shows you consider successful and why do you think they were successful? Let's see. I would say that, uh, Dear Franklin Jones was definitely one of the more successful shows that I worked on. Dear Franklin Jones is an eight-part documentary series um, about um, my, my now boss, Jonathan Hirsch's life growing up in a cult in Northern California. Um, he was born into this cult. Like His parents joined it before he was born. He was born into it. He ended up leaving when he was 16, led by this guy who went by names, but for the sake of the, the name of the podcast, let's call him Franklin Jones. And um, it's this cult that ended up being like really, really um, ended up like coming under a lot of different scandals. And there were a lot of like really shady things that went on. And when he left, he tried to really just figure out his life after that and ended up, and this is his exploration of going back and interviewing his parents, interviewing people who were part of the cult, who studied the cult to figure out like why, what happened and why is he the person? Like Mm -hmm. how did he become the way he is? And so it was a really, interesting um i mean it was part documentary part memoir and also it kind of fell into this sort of vein of true crime adjacent and i think that's why partly that's why it worked and also we had no clue about this but when this show launched back in february 2018 um as it ended that netflix series wild wild country started was i think just had dropped on 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 that service on netflix and then there were a couple other stories about cult. Plus, we had done a, a podcast on Heaven's Gate before that. I wasn't as much involved in that one. But um, I think because we had done both those podcasts kind of back-to-back, in addition to others, but those are two that I worked on, I think that really helped. And both of those were really strong in their storytelling. They were um, really – like, we were lucky enough to get some really good write-ups by, uh, mm-hmm. you know, by Vulture and The Guardian and other places like that. So that's what made it a success. And both those shows went to number one on the Apple podcast charts. And right. uh, even though at Stitcher, we didn't live and die by the, the charts, we knew that it made a really big difference if we got that visibility. And why others so, were yeah. not so successful? Oh, man. So, oh, gosh. One of the ones that I, I wish was successful, and I don't think it was, uh, was um, was Gossip. So mm-hmm. uh, Gossip was this, um, gosh, was it 10 or 12 episodes? It was, so it was, um, I'm forgetting how many episodes. It's either 10 or 12 episodes, but it was a... Um, it was a scripted um, fictional comedy um, show or like, yeah, scripted fictional comedy, um, like dramedy podcast. And so we, we said it was essentially like 
um, Desperate Housewives meets Jane the Virgin. So it was <laughs> it was kind of a kooky sort of story, but um, it was created by Allison Raskin, who's this like who is once like a pretty like pretty like famous in her own right YouTuber, mm-hmm. who's also like has her a pod, another podcast on Stitcher. Anyways, so she had pitches to us. Basically, it's about these three women who who are in this fictional town, kind of based a little bit on her life growing up in, in New York State, um, who meet at a coffee shop and talk about all the scandals and the gossip going on in their in their uh, in their town. Mm-hmm. From like extra male affairs to um, like a possible murder mystery, and so it like we had we hired a whole cast of you know of actors mainly comedians about I think somewhere between a dozen and fifteen people. Allison was one of them, um, and each episode was kind of like a set in a sort of series of flashbacks. So they talk about what happened that week, and then they kind of flashback, and there'd be different scenes. And so we had to talk, we had to think through like how do you create a scene if in, in audio, if no one can see that going on, like in TV, it's a lot easier, you know, just change, you know, just go. So we played around with a little bit of sound design, um, a little bit with just like the way in which we were storytelling. We had a rule there that there should be no more than three people speaking regularly or speaking con- like often in a scene or else it gets too confusing for, for listeners. Now, um, I don't know. I don't remember how that show did on the charts. I mean, I think it did get to in the top 200 at some point, but I think the reason I have a couple of theories on why it wasn't as successful. I think yeah. one was that the concept was kind of newer. There hadn't been as many scripted fictional shows out there yet. Oh, you're um, saying the audience was not ready for that? Yeah, I don't know. If the, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to like. I don't want to put the blame on the audience, but mm-hmm. maybe that's part of it that they weren't ready or they weren't exactly sure what to expect. I think that's part of it. Okay. And then I also think that. Um, Maybe in terms of reaching press and ter- for for write ups, there was a little bit of confusion as to what the show really was. Although we pretty clear, um, but now that we have more series out there, more fictional series out there, especially when we look at stuff that Gimlet makes and and even we did we did a collaboration with with uh, Marvel when I was a Stitcher uh, for the whole Wolverine series. Perhaps that's it. And maybe sometimes you need. Um, a bigger name behind the series to to help it, you know, yeah, really um, grab the attention. Mm-hmm. That could that could help too. And we didn't have super big names, but we had some really talented actors, and I really believed in them. So yeah, I think it was a combination of those things. But um, th- but the thing is, Allison has a very um, dedicated and devoted fan base, and so we still to this day, even though the podcast launched a little over a year ago, yeah, almost like a year, like it was last June, June twenty eighteen, I think. Um, mm-hmm. We still get she still gets emails and we still get comments on like on the Apple podcast uh, review site and other, other um, podcast players of uh, people asking for a season two of gossip to be made. So who knows? We'll see what happens. (laughs) I think we have a bunch of questions uh, about your other projects and uh, yeah, maybe we talk a little bit. Yeah. Um, John, are you ready? Sure. Yeah. It's grilling time. Just kidding. (laughs) So um, I'm, I'm kind of going to ask you some questions about what you're working on now, both um, in the office and then also play it back, your um, indie podcast that you work on, uh, separate from Neon Hum. So um, you started at Neon Hum just a few months ago, right? How long ago? Yeah, about I'm closing in on four months. In, wow. In mid-May, yeah. So will you do us a favor? Will you tell us 
why Neon Hum came to be. Um, tell us a little bit about Jonathan Hirsch's background. And um, yeah, I just want to understand how it fits into the larger Los Angeles landscape of production houses. Yeah, sure. So I guess a bit on Jonathan Hirsch. Like I said before, I worked with him at Stitcher on Dear Franklin Jones. And for for several years, he had been an independent producer, reporter, and sound designer working with NPR, Vox, NBC, Fusion Media Group. Uh, he worked with a bunch of different um, companies, and uh, and he had he had done some really great work, some like really award winning work. He had won a Murrow. He had um, you know Franklin Jones wow. did really great, and so he decided that he saw other people in the field, especially more so on the East Coast, like with um, you know prominent producers and reporters who had actually gone on their own and making their own company because they had been getting so many different requests to make content for all these different companies that it, it seemed mm-hmm. that he couldn't do it on his own. It, like it was physically impossible. And mm-hmm. so he saw, uh, you know, Jenna Weiss Berman at pineapple street media with her podcast production company. And you got Greta Cohn who started transmitter media, who she had left stitcher to do that. And, and Jenna had left Buzzfeed to make pineapple. Um, and then you, uh, there've been a handful that had popped up basically. And he thought, okay, well, this seems to be the way to go. And he had a lot of connections and he's like, people know him from coast to coast. And so he said, let me start this team and, or let me start this company. And he started out with a podcast with um, the company cafe. Um, and uh, it was a podcast with Basim Yusuf, AKA the, uh, the John Stewart of Egypt, as he's called. Um, satirical yeah, talk show host. Yeah. And it was, um, yeah. And they, they made this podcast called remade in America. And it was um, about him exploring it was about him like talking about being an outsider in America and finding out what it means to belong. And that was like him. It was a long form, uh, long form interview type of show. And so he was getting a lot of requests from different companies to make shows from like from crooked media and uninterrupted and wondery and the ringer. And so he was like, he thought, okay, I'm going to need to build this team more and more. And so, um, that's when he started recruiting other people. And he had talked to me about it. He's launched a company back in April, 2018, like literally as for dear Franklin Jones was ending. So he already had, that's amazing. So we had talked, we had become friends at that point. And he kind of just mentioned to me, he said, well, if I were to, I need to find a senior producer. And if I were to, if I were to ever find one, or when I tell people I need to find one, I, I mention you. And I'm like, I'm really flattered. That's great. (laughs) Uh, I haven't been at Stitcher for very long, but that's cool. He's like, no, I'm not trying to, he's like, he didn't put any pressure on me to poach me, but Mm -hmm. I'm very flattered still. So basically cut to like this past spring and we start talking again and he said, yeah, still looking, looking for a new senior producer. And we started talking some more. And what I started to notice is that I had a few other friends going to podcast production companies. And what I noticed is that like having a work for hire production podcast production company allowed would allow me to work with a bunch of different clients, kind of like I did at Stitcher. Cause like not every, even though everything I was working on was original. We did work in conjunction with a couple of different companies. Mm-hmm. Um, coincidentally work with pineapple street media on, oh, what was the ending of the podcast? Oh, on, um, heaven's gate. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, we had worked with, uh, scripts uh the parent company of stitcher on a couple other podcasts that i made but basically i w- i saw the lineup of clients that he had and also i found out that he was working with stitcher <laughs> on a podcast oh, wow. too uh like uh, like i had been a part of the initial talk so i knew that he was working on something with, with mm-hmm. uh, over there but then i saw that he was working with the la times and nbc and wondery and all these other companies that i thought were really interesting i thought oh, that would yeah. that be cool to make a podcast with spotify but like be able to work on a podcast with endeavor audio at the same time Mm-hmm. Um, and so we started talking and, you know, a few things that kind of changed that at Stitcher, um, in terms of like, um, 
people who had worked there and my boss had left actually. And she went off to actually start her own podcast production company. Um, that's in the works right now. And so I thought, wow. okay, well, this, this is a chance for me to like make a name, like make more of a name for myself in the LA podcast scene. And there are not that many of these companies that already exist. I only knew of like one or two. And now there are, there are a couple more that are coming. And so I thought this is kind of a calculated risk. I I'm getting a, like I'm moving into a higher position as a managing producer. Um, I can see, oversee more shows. Um, and it doesn't hurt that the pay is better. And so I thought, you know, like I'm leaving on a high note. I, I left Stitcher like with everything going really well, honestly. Um, like I, I was in control of my projects. I was enjoying the work, but I wanted a new challenge. And that was really what it came down to. Well, awesome. That's a great origin story for your new position. I sort of touched on this, but, and you sort of touched on it as well, but I want to ask more explicitly, what is Neon Hum doing differently than other podcast production houses in Los Angeles and even in New York and even the wider U.S. space. Ooh, we take on a lot of a lot of projects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe some. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to speculate too hard here because I don't know exact numbers and and everything. Yeah. I think we've maybe taken on more projects than other companies have taken on at um, at one time. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, we've we've had our growing pace here and there. But I think that's one thing. Uh, another one is that we're working with a really big variety of clients. Like we're not just working with companies. Well, first off, we don't actually do any um, branded work. Like if we're working with a company, most of them are media companies already that either make podcasts or want to make podcasts or need help making documentary type podcasts. So that's it. Um, nothing against branded work, branded um, podcasts. That's just not really in our lane. We re- also we really concentrate, really concentrate on documentary cinematic storytelling type of podcast so right right like um yeah i just finished listening to room 20 which i noticed at the end credits neon hum gets a nice uh production uh piece and that's really nice so can you talk about what what involvement neon hum had with room 20 and a little bit about room 20 Uh, i can talk a little bit about it i i did not work on that podcast so i I don't want to say more than I than I know or try to sure. guess more than I know. But in a in a with a show like Room Twenty, what we did was um, we helped with somewhat with development. It was one of those things where the LA, we have a partnership with the LA Times and the LA Times Studios, and so they came to I believe from what I remember they came to us. They've come to us, us with a few ideas, and this was one that they wanted our help with. And so we helped with the development of the show, like in terms of the format, what is it going to sound like, what's the outline of the show, what. You know, what, what is the story we're trying to tell from episode to episode? We also work with the reporter who brought the story to the LA Times and to us in, in terms of for, forming the show. And then we handled all the pretty a vast majority of the production in terms of the actual audio editing, the recording, the, the, the engineering, the sound engineering, the actual uh, audio engineering itself. Um, and then from there, in terms of marketing and promotion, that's on our clients. Like that's on like mm-hmm. daily. That's nice. That's kind of like the bait. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's I think a, a bigger yeah. difference between working at a podcast production company versus a, a network is that um, I'm I'm not a part of those conversations when it comes to marketing and ad sales and promotion, unless only to a little bit of an extent. If a, if a, if a, if a client asks for a little bit of advice, then I'm a part of it. But for the most part, we are solely based on production. For the most part, you get it done and then you hand it off and then it's their job to make it pop. Yep. <laughs> That's it. That's pretty nice. Well, now just to circle back to some of your personal accomplishments and your goals, what do you hope to bring to the audio space that is unique to you as John? I hope to do more episodes of Play It Back. I've had it on hiatus for a little bit too long and mm-hmm. been trying to rethink the format and really think through 
maybe if I'm maybe I'm overthinking it. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about tell us a little bit about Play It Back. How did it start, and what's the premise? Yeah, so Play It Back in it, in its essence is a um, I don't want to say long form, but it's a it's a right now in the stage is the chat show, short form chat show uh, where I interview creatives like writers, producers, and I, especially musicians and music lovers. I, I ask them to tell me the story of, of the song that has changed their life, about discovering the song that has changed their life in some way, shape, or form. It's gotten them through a, mm-hmm. a really difficult time, um, helped them celebrate a really interesting time, really helped them like open up their their eyes and ears to a new experience in life. And I started it, the idea, I've had, I had the idea for like a number of years, but it took a while for me to like actually want to put it into a podcast and make it into a podcast. Mm-hmm. And what it kind of derived from was that um, uh, was one, I was DJing college. Uh, I'm two, I'm a huge music fan. I love talking about music and people's experiences with it. And, and three, I realized that um, I was tired of reading, reading music reviews that felt like that weren't, that felt like they weren't talking about the music itself. <laughs> and yeah. I, I wanted to get, I wanted to kind of experiment and like, get down to like the the essence of why do what like what's the human connection between us and the music that's created in the world and mm-hmm. i thought well what better than to talk about when people discover a song and also you can you can peg a song to a specific moment in your life um, whether it is good or bad i think anybody can do that and and um being able to connect with people about you know when you first heard a song and and what that song means to you and i i can literally pinpoint different part, points of my life based on a song um that i hear in like the grocery store or doctor's office even yeah but now you know? and- <laughs> <laughs> me too actually i do that with podcasts too yes it's actually very crazy. True. Like, the way it works for me is that like i'll drive by a place that i haven't been to in a while and all of a sudden i'm hearing facts from a podcast and i'm like oh that's weird like <laughs> i listened to that while i was driving here <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yep. I've had the same feeling. It's, <laughs> and so that's no, good. And so with like, I just, I love that you can do that with music and, um, yeah. and I thought it was just like a really universal topic or, or concept that I hadn't really seen in the music. Like if I look on, if I look on any podcast app for music shows mm-hmm. and I was surprised that I, I'd seen it in slivers of different shows, but I was like, why hasn't anybody done this? And to, to a big extent. So I figured like, this yeah. is my way to kind of like fill that void. So I think a lot of our listeners who either are listening now live or are going to be listening in the future, they are creators of podcasts, probably independently, and some of them will be podcast creators or content creators of some sort for companies. And I think a lot of them experience what you are experiencing with Play It Back, which is kind of like a lull in production. So can you um, talk us through why you feel like you're in a lull or why you feel like you've stopped production at this point? And what do you think will eventually bring you back to the path of creating the show? Uh, Part of my reasoning, I think the biggest one is kind of a unique one is that my world is already podcasting. I am a producer. I've been a I've been an audio producer for the greater part of a decade. And so some days when I get home, I, I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> I just need a break. Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, I think that was becoming a bit of like a, a pain point for me and that um, I felt like it felt more like a job than it did uh, like a sense of enjoyment and pride. Um, but I try to get over that. And I realized like my, the excuse I used to give is that I don't have enough time. And even mm-hmm. though, yes, like my first couple of months at Neon Hum were really, or super busy. And I think that's any, any job that you start, you're just, just getting your footing. Like I do have the time now. And I think I have other few other things going on in my life, but 
what it really comes down to is like f making sure I like block out and find the time to do it right. and planning ahead. Like the big, biggest mistake that I had made when I first launched play it back, which was back when I worked at WNYC was that I didn't stack up enough ep episodes. Like, and I didn't right. really define a good production schedule. Like I really thought I could grind and get out an episode every other week. And honestly, when I started, a lot of things were pretty different. Like one, Podcast trailers weren't a thing. This was only in 2016. This was like early 2016. Wow. Um, podcast trailers weren't a thing. Very, were very, very much on. Like they were, they a, a few shows had them, but they were more like the higher quality, like you know, like documentary type production sort of thing. Right. Like, now everyone's doing it. Now everyone's doing it. Doesn't matter what show. You, I, it really helps to have a trailer. So I actually went back when I right. did, um, when I re, when I brought the show back last year, I made a trailer um, because I'm like. Uh, I want people to know what the show's about in a couple of minutes. Right. Uh, two, I realized that I was kind of toying over the format a bit because um, I sort of felt like, well, I've worked on all these narrative storytelling documentary type podcasts. I could, should be able to do this on my own, but I realized that like, I think I have more, I have more, uh, more uh, experience editing them than I do of creating them, but mm -hmm. I'm not, I've done them before here and there but it takes but I, the thing i also realize is that it takes a lot a lot of time to really develop that kind of show um even if you're only doing even if your episodes are 15 20 minutes long which my show is every episode is about 20 25 minutes long i don't i try wow. not to make anything super long yeah i i like for me i like the shorter the better unless like there's a reason for me to do a full long story so for me to be able to put out these episodes frequently i figured i gotta make them shorter and then uh, and like I took inspiration from some of my favorite shows, like like uh, Song Exploder, where every episode's about twenty twenty five minutes, and I feel like it, get, it gets the, and even shorter, it gets the point across in that amount yeah. of time. Um, and so like James Cridlin says, your podcast should be exactly as long as it needs to be, and not a moment longer. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes, 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 yes. I saw James's uh, quote. I've seen it a few times, and I hundred yeah. percent agree. So, and actually, going back to the whole thing of like planning, um, what I I know I need to do. Um, is not only just bank episodes, but realize like turning my episode, my show from a continuous show that like I was putting out an episode once a month and even that was kind of a slog working with like a, a partner is that like two things from there. One, if I'm going to find a partner, I need to find someone who's going to be all in hundred percent. No offense to like, no disrespect to my last co-host. I think we just had really, really conflicting schedules and that made it harder, but I think you just need someone who's going to be in it. And in terms of the actual release like there were times where we were good about releasing an episode once a month, but sometimes it would be a little while before we did. And so maybe we were putting too much, too many steps into it. But I think being able to not only bank episodes, but realize, okay, you know, switching to a seasonal format was like so much less of a headache for me where I'd said, okay, right. I'm a, I'm a commit to doing 10 or 12 episodes every other week for this amount of time. And then if I bank a couple, even if I have an off week where I'm super busy and a different part of my life, I'm not running behind. And so I have about a handful or so of interviews already recorded. I just need to like clean them up and record the intros and out intros and outros and other things. And hopefully I'll be back back in action soon enough. But I just want to make sure I keep it going. That's the thing. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, can I jump in and ask uh, something about playback? Just a short yeah. question. Yeah. Curious, how do you pick interviewees for the show? Oh, good question. I've changed it a bit when i first started i lived in new york and i was really getting into the new york uh open mic storytelling scene and uh, like going to the moth and shows like that and my my thought was oh i need to interview all these people who have great stories because i was huh? going to shows where people were actually telling 
you know, bits of their stories had to do with like connecting with the song. And I even actually told a story at a show that was about a similar concept to my show. And I thought, okay, I got to interview these people. They're going to have great stories. The songs will come with them. So I don't, I don't actually pick the songs at all. I ask the people to pick the song they want. I want a good story. I'd rather kind of figure out the, like learn about the song along the way. And then uh, now I've realized um, after thanks, thanks for like my, thanks to like my connections at like working in public radio and, and podcasting that like I've, I've st- stayed in touch with a couple of different like uh, music PR people. And so they will every once in a while message me and say like, Hey, do you want to cover this artist who's coming into town and talk to them? And I go, well, I don't, you know, I don't work for the show anymore, but I have my own show. Would they be interested in being on this podcast to talk about like their favorite song instead of like their album, which they've probably been talking about for like months and months on end. And sometimes it actually works. And, and that's been really cool. So now I've been targeting more, musicians especially up and coming musicians that i think okay cool you know or an indie artist where they may not be big now but who knows like they could end up be having a number one hit and i go hey i interviewed them way back when and i thought it's really cool that's a really oh. good uh, way to repurpose and yeah. to get people to talk about things that they're not always talking about exactly yeah. i my joke from the beginning is that um my uh my goal is to one day interview Questlove, and so <laughs> um, hopefully I can do it because after I read his book, I go, oh, this dude can talk about any like oh, wow. hundreds of songs yeah. in the show. Yeah. I believe in you. You just have to put it out there. <laughs> and Thank you. Just you. you just did on Pod Bites, and that's, you know, that's huge. So if anybody here knows oh, Quest, boy. let us know. <laughs> let me know. <laughs> um, let's, let's do this. We have just a few more questions for you. Um, but I want to remind our listeners who are listening live that you are welcome to write in with questions and we will read them out loud and John will answer them. And just remember, he is an expert. So please feel free to, uh, this is your, it's like office hours. It's like he's a professor and you can ask questions to him and you can get an answer that will improve your life potentially. So, um, wisely, um, that's no pressure on you, John. And also to our to our uh, listeners who are tuning in with the replay, this is livecast. Next time, please feel free to tune in live. We do this every Wednesday night, six o'clock p.m. Pacific, nine o'clock p.m. Eastern time. So let's let's do this. Just a few more questions for you, John. I want to yeah. actually to one of your <clears throat> one of your hobbies that you're pretty uh, open about, which is running. I know you're a big runner with the November Project. In a few minutes, you'll understand why this is podcast related. But can you tell us a little bit about the November project and what made you find it? Yeah, it's uh, it's built as a, a free fitness movement. It's it's a running slash workout group um, <clears throat> that actually has chapters in about 50, 50, now 52 different cities across the world. Wow. And um, we meet in L.A. There's two different groups. I meet with the one on the east side of L.A. And every Wednesday we meet at Griffith Observatory. And every Friday we meet at uh, different parts of the city. And there are even smaller workouts with smaller subgroups within the group. But it's, uh, yeah, about like 30, 40, 50, 60 people meeting wow. at the crack of dawn. Well, we, meet, we meet early. like five. There's like a 5.30 and 6.30 session on Wednesdays and a 6 a.m. session on Fridays. Uh, I go to try to go to most of those. But um, we do anything. We do a lot of circuit training. So it'll be like – Oh, wow. Um, run like it'll be like run through this part of griffith park and like like this morning for example we ran like we always meet in the observatory we were in this one trail that goes like up a hill and down down a hill into like kind of up a, a path toward mount hollywood and mm-hmm. at the at, at the rock this one rock will turn around and on the bridge we'll do like ten, oh no at the at the rock we'll like do a couple of like jumps and then on the bridge on the way back we'll do some dips and then as we get to the 
the, the start of the trail, when we come back, we'll do some push-ups, and we'll do that, and they'll all be for like 35 minutes. So it's a, yeah, it's a mixture of running and, and bodyweight training. People who are in it are all different um, athletic abil- abilities, like people who have never run a 5K or tra- training for their first race to um, literally there have been people who have like, competed in the Olympics who are in it. But in our group, it's wow. like some people who've done Ironman, which is like still incredible to me. So I fell somewhere in the middle there. <laughs> So, so what does this have to do with podcasting? Well, my question is, um, is there a connection for you between the meditative nature of podcasts and the meditative nature of running? Yeah, uh, in two ways. Well, to run to podcast, not, I can't, I don't know what it is anymore. I think I need to, the music, like I need a, a steady beat to get me through. But sometimes if I want to get my mind completely off of running, I will pop on a podcast that's really funny or just really interesting to just take my mind off of stuff. But uh, more so that um, I think a lot about what I'm going to produce and how I'm going to tackle it while I'm running. Wow. And that's Yeah, it's really a therapeutic thing. It's, uh, running either kind of like clears, helps me clear my mind of everything or helps me think through a really creative process. So that's, yeah, that's, my, that's, the, that's the connection there for me. Wow, yeah, that's really interesting. So it's kind of like a mental block breaker for you. Yes. <laughs> that's great. And um, I've heard so many great things about November Project, and I know it's a big part of you, so I figured it definitely has something to do with your with your professional career, so I wanted to make sure to ask that. Before we sign off, what is the podcast that first got you into listening? Ooh, uh, God, the one that I listened to probably the most often to start was Planet Money, NPR's oh, wow. Planet Money. Yeah, um, but there's so many. I mean, I'm looking here yeah. at my app, and I'm just like, uh, and I I feel like I bounced from app to app, but yeah, I'd say Planet Money was probably one of the first. I mean, I did listen to This American Life, but I would say like the one that really kept me really in it in terms of like, I guess like kind of broke some like rules for me in my mind and really opened up my mind was a Snap Judgment. It's still one of my favorite shows oh, wow. today. Yeah. So, and that's your current go-to show? I, I try to keep up with it. I'm not as great about keeping up with it today, uh, mm-hmm. but it is definitely one of, one of my go-to shows for sure for the stories. Well, nice. yeah. um, let's see quickly if we have any questions from anybody. Um, let's see. Mr. Bub says, let's see. I can't really see his question. Valentina, do you mind reading that? Getting sponsored at first hard. Are oh, you sponsored? So, play it back. No, no. Sp- Playback is a solely independent, not sponsored thing. So unfortunately I can't speak to that. Um, I really just do it as a side project. Like if it ever gets sponsored one day, that'd be awesome. But I have, I, I personally will say that I have not put in the time um, and the effort to really get it to be sponsored. Um, and I, I think that's probably because, again, I just see it as a, just a, a, like a hobby of sorts, um, a way to just flex my creative muscles in a different way. But yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I can't speak as much to sponsoring, but I know that in terms of trying to get sponsored, sometimes from, from some people I talk to, sometimes it's as easy as like, not easy, I shouldn't say easy. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's worth just sending out that cold email to a company and saying, hi, this is what my podcast is about. Are you, um, are you looking to sponsor, if you're looking to sponsor a podcast, like please consider mine. It yeah. is, it is definitely trickier. Um, if I, if I had, if I have been, if I was sponsored, I would totally give you tips on how, but unfortunately I'm not. <laughs> Maybe we'll uh, call you back in a year or so when you are <laughs> producing this podcast weekly and <laughs> you're, you have tons of sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, only dream. Yeah. All right. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. Do we have more questions at this point? We don't. Mr. Bob says everyone join my fitness slash mental health improvement challenge. It begins on September 11th. 
Uh-huh. Okay, and that's a wrap for the show this week. You were listening to the Pod Bites. I'm Valentina Caladina, and here also was Ariel Nissenblatt. We're joined by John Asante. John, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening and asking questions. Please make sure you subscribe to the show. You can click on the show picture. There is a follow button. Please make sure you click it so you will receive push notification when we will go live next time. Also, you can see the upcoming live show on the Livecast page of CastBox. Use the app, call in, ask questions, and interact with your favorite hosts. We'll see you next week. Bye.